All right, it's such a privilege uh, to be with you today and uh, so thankful to have this time to look together at God's Word. If you have been coming for the past several months, you know we've been doing a little series on gospel culture, and so we've been talking about the kind of church that God wants us to be, and we've talked about things like being a needy church and being a holy church and being a hopeful church and being an evangelistic church and being a spiritually strong church, and there is more, but I I thought I could talk today about being a merciful church, a merciful church, a church that sacrificially cares for the needy, where radical, risky love for uh, the vulnerable is built into our DNA. And uh, what I want to do today is show you why by thinking a little together about James chapter 1, uh, verse 27. And Isaiah was preaching through the book of James, I know, before I came, so this is a book of the Bible that you are familiar with, for sure. But James is writing to a group of people who are fairly active spiritually. You remember that. He calls them the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which is a little bit cryptic, but just means we have to read the book to figure out who he's talking about. And when we do, it's clear that these are religious people. They're not just out there in the world doing their thing. They would have claimed to be believers, followers of Christ, and they were uh, pretty devoted. And we know that because, for one thing, they're reading this letter. James calls them hearers of the word. They enjoyed listening to God's word. He uh, tells us that they thought of themselves as fairly religious. There were even uh, some of them who thought they were ready to be teachers, So they thought they were fairly wise and and understanding. But in spite of all that, it seems pretty clear as you read throughout James that he has some concern for them, for their actual spiritual condition. He has a concern that their religious activity, all that going to church, all that hearing the word, is uh, not the real thing. There's true religion and there's counterfeit religion. And we know James is concerned for some of them because he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, do not be deceived, my brothers. And he says in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He speaks of someone deceiving his own heart in verse 26. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, he speaks of a dead faith. A faith, he says, that does not save. Someone who says they believe, but that faith does them no spiritual good. In chapter 3, in verses 13 and 14, he talks about a wisdom, a kind of religious wisdom that comes from the devil. So it's demonic wisdom. He speaks of boasting and being false to the truth, thinking that you're wise when in fact you're not, which is one reason why James is writing this letter, and in this letter, one of the things that he does is give them tests. James gives them tests to evaluate, to help them evaluate their faith. It's almost as if he's coming to them and saying, uh, you say you have faith? Let's look at that faith a little more closely and see if it's the real thing. And one of the first places he gives a series of tests is in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, where he writes, if anyone thinks he's religious, which maybe nowadays doesn't sound so good, religion, ooh, 
But actually here in James is not a bad thing. It just means if anyone thinks he's a, a Christian, basically. He gives three ways to evaluate. First, he, he speaks about the way we rule over our tongue. That's one of the tests. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this, relig- this person's religion is worthless, which is kind of negative, right? It's worthless. In other words, it's nothing better than idolatry. You're carrying that big Bible, you're coming to church, you're, you're thinking you're wise, but you're not able to bridle your tongue. You might as well uh, be worshiping an idol. But then he begins to speak a little more positively. Next verse, that was false religion. What is true religion? And he defines pure and undefiled religion in two ways. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And you see there at the end, he talks about our relationship with the world. That's a test. And then right in the middle, he speaks about our response to the hurting around us. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. And that's the test that I want to focus on. Our response to the hurting is one of the ways James tests the reality of our religion. And this test is important to James. And we know it's important for one thing because of the way that he frames this statement. Religion that is pure and undefiled before, or you might say in the sight of God is this. And I'm not sure there's a big difference in James's mind between pure and undefiled. It's more just a way of saying a completely pure religion, real religion, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Visit meaning something more than simply showing up or like going on a missions trip to, a, to an orphanage. It is to take care of. It is to seek someone out. It's a word they use for nursing the sick. That's why the New International Version translates it to look after. It's being concerned about someone else with a sense of responsibility for them. And we know what orphans and widows are, of course, though maybe we think a little bit more technically about them than the Bible does, because it seems like in the Bible they represent a class, kind of like in the Gospels, how they would talk about tax collectors and sinners. And they represented a group of different kinds of people. Orphans and widows often represent a class of the most vulnerable in society. So you see a a person who has a very difficult time taking care of themselves surviving or thriving. That's an orphan or a widow. And James is saying that religious activity that God himself looks at as pleasing is what? It is taking care of hurting orphans and widows and the vulnerable when they're, they're in trouble, showing radical, sacrificial mercy to those who need it most, which is a big thing to say, isn't it? Because this is God speaking on religion. This is the one that we come to worship. And he's giving us a way to evaluate the reality of our religion. He's describing the kind of religion and religious activity that honors him. And he is looking at the way we respond to the hurting around us. And it got me searching around in my Bible to figure out why James puts so much weight on this. Because he does. And not just here either. If you think about the book as a whole, in the next chapter, what's he talking about? 
He's talking about favoritism and specifically the way we relate to the rich and the poor. And he says, very middle of chapter 2, he says, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's how important this is. And when he talks about saving faith later, you remember the illustration that he brings up to show how empty it is to say you have faith without works. He illustrates that by saying it's like saying you care for someone who's poor and needy without actually being willing to help them. And then, of course, he talks about communication in chapter 3 and worldliness in chapter 4. And then he comes back to the importance of how we relate to the vulnerable at the beginning of chapter 5 when he talks once again about the rich and the poor. So, you know, each of these issues that he brings up at the end of chapter 1, communication, worldliness, and care for the vulnerable, is a big deal to James. This whole book kind of revolves around it. And I'm asking, why? Why specifically today does James put so much weight on the way we reach out to orphans and widows and other vulnerable people in our world? Why does he put such an emphasis on mercy? I want you to think about why is this an important test? Why does James' mind go here? And I want to give you a number of reasons why it's not surprising, actually, that James's definition of pure and undefiled religion begins with the way we relate to the orphan and to the widow and to those who are in need. And I'll start with the simple and the obvious. The first reason has to do with the character of God. So if we're religious, we are saying that we are concerned about God and that we're concerned about what God is concerned about. And when we look to the scripture, we see that God is very concerned about mercy and specifically about orphans and widows. And one way we know that is because of what he tells us about himself. In Psalm chapter 10, verse 14, and we're going to go through a lot of scripture today, so hopefully you can write it down and look some of them up uh, later. But in Psalm chapter 10, verse 14, God describes himself as the helper of the orphan. So that's one of the titles he gives himself. In Psalm 68, verse 5, he describes himself as the father to the fatherless. And actually, in the Old Testament, God doesn't speak of himself as a father very often. But one of the places, I think 19 times or so, but one of the places that he does in the Old Testament, he describes himself as a father to the fatherless. In Psalm chapter 146, verse 9, he says, The Lord watches over the refugee. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14, Moses describes God saying, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And really we could go on because the Bible is filled with descriptions of God's concern for the vulnerable. And it's filled with those descriptions because there is no one anywhere in the universe who is more merciful than God. You take the most merciful person on the planet. God is infinitely more merciful. And if we just think about the gospel, the gospel proves that because here's man and God doesn't need man. And man can't do God any good. And yet God makes this perfect world and man rebels against God and brings all this pain and misery into the world. And yet what does God do? 
Long story short, he takes such pity on man that he sends his only son to take the punishment that man deserves so that man could be delivered and set free. And he makes this incredible offer that he'll give those who come to him with nothing complete and perfect and eternal happiness forever if they just stop relying on themselves and depend on Jesus and what Jesus did instead. You can look at every single example of goodness, compassion, mercy, pity that anyone in the world has ever performed in all of history, and it doesn't compare to what God has done for sinners through Jesus Christ. In fact, one old theologian says, all the mercy and goodness among creatures falls infinitely short of this, the mercy of God. This is goodness that never was, never will be, never can be paralleled by any other being. And I love that line. This is goodness that never was, never will, and never can be paralleled. We look at salvation, and what does it show us? One thing it shows us is God's unparalleled mercy ministry. It shows us that God is actively engaged in an absolutely unparalleled form of mercy ministry. And one of the reasons our attitude towards the needy is such a good test of the reality of our religion is because you become like who you worship. If this is the character of God, if we worship a God who is this merciful, we are going to be a people who are merciful. And I want to say that loud and clear because whenever we talk about mercy, it is tempting for us to think of it as like sort of a personality thing. Uh, when really it's much bigger than that. This is not about what you're interested in or uh, your personality. It is about having a God-centered way of looking at the world. It's about being interested in what God is interested in. And when we look at the scriptures, we see that God is very interested in the good of orphans and the good of widows and the good of vulnerable people. And one way we know that right off the bat is because of what he tells us about himself. Second, a second reason it makes sense that James brings up this test is because of all the commands that God gives to Israel in the Old Testament. And you always have to be careful when you look at the Old Testament commands because they were given to a certain people at a certain time for a certain reason. And we're not those people. We're not the nation of Israel, obviously. But while many of those laws aren't specifically addressed to us, they still have application to us by revealing something important about God's priorities and God's concerns. And when you read the Old Testament law, you see that most definitely God is concerned about the needy. For example, God commands his people not to take advantage of widows and orphans. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 20, he says, You shall not pervert the justice due to an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. And beyond that, God commands his people in the Old Testament to give sacrificially to widows and orphans. He tells them, When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow, what is left over. And the reason he gives that command is he says, you remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. Remember where you came from, and that should change how you live. And you know what? God was not just concerned about their actions either. He was concerned about their heart towards the vulnerable. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7, 
He says, if any among you, one of your brothers should become poor and any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart against your poor brother. And that strikes me because it's not just about what you do. It's actually about your heart all the way back in the Old Testament. And then he says, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging towards him. And of course, we know one of the reasons God gave Israel these laws was so that Israel would be a nation that would put the character of God on display so that the whole world would see what God is like and what it's like to live with God as king and be drawn to God. And so even if these commands are not for us first and foremost, as we look back at books like Deuteronomy, they certainly show us the character of God. And throughout the Old Testament, these commands are broadened out from more than just orphans and widows to the poor to the point where a person's attitude towards the poor reflects a person's attitude towards God. Like Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. In Proverbs 14, verse 31, Solomon says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors God. And so that poor man... Your relationship with the poor man is not just about your relationship with the poor man. Your attitude and your response to the poor reveals your attitude towards God. Which is why this test here in James is not surprising. Obviously, if we say God is the center of our world, we need to prove that true by actually caring about what God cares about. And it's clear from the way God describes himself and the commands he gives Israel that God cares about orphans, widows, and the vulnerable. Third, a third reason it's not surprising that James brings up our concern for the orphan and the widow as a test of the reality of our religion is because a lack of concern for the orphan and the widow is given in the scripture as a mark of wickedness. You want to know what a wicked person looks like, you read the prophets. One thing he's doing is he's worshiping idols, but a second thing that he's doing is not showing concern for the poor. Isaiah chapter 1, for example, Isaiah cries out against the wickedness of the people, and Isaiah actually comes and he tells them, God hates your religious activity. It's really a stunning chapter. You should take some time to read it. God says, please stop praying. When God tells you to stop praying, you know you're in trouble. He says, stop praying until you get something right. And what is it that they need to get right? They need to repent. And then he says, I'll tell you what repentance looks like for you. Isaiah 1, 16 and following. Here it is. Reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. That's how I'll know your repentance is genuine. And one illustration, this wasn't something that God just wanted from Israel alone but was actually a reflection of his character is found in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, where God is explaining why he destroyed Sodom. If someone asked you, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? I wonder what answer you would give. Well, Ezekiel gives an answer as to why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, behold, look, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. It's pretty straightforward. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. And so the the prophets are coming after the people over and over again 
first of all, for idolatry and then for injustice, specifically their lack of concern for the vulnerable. And one reason that lack of concern for the vulnerable was such a big deal was because it revealed idolatry. In other words, how did you know the people of Israel had given themselves over to idolatry? It wasn't that they stopped coming to the temple to sacrifice. You remember some of those prophets, Jeremiah stood in front of the temple, right? So they were still coming to the temple. They were using the temple uh, and making sacrifices all the time. But how did you know that they were idolaters? One of the ways you knew in the prophets that they had given themselves over to idolatry was by their lack of concern for the needy. On the other hand, a concern for the needy is a mark of holiness in the Old Testament. If you go back even before Israel again to Job. So Job's not an Israelite. He's just a godly man. And you know, one way you know Job was a godly man, he tells us in Job 29, verse 4. He says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. Actually, uh, his friends had come to him and said, Job, you can't be godly, and it must be that you mistreated the orphan. That's why you're being suffering the way you are. And Job's like, are you kidding me? Look at my life. I am godly. Look at the way I've treated those who were in need. This was a lifestyle for Job to the point where he says in chapter 31, if I've kept the poor from their desire, or if I've caused the widow to fail, or if I've eaten my morsel alone and have not shared it, if I've lifted my hand up against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. And it's not just there either. Psalm 37, 21, the righteous person is generous and gives. Psalm 112, verse 5 and 9, the righteous has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In the Old Testament, righteousness is not just a negative thing, like you don't go to bad movies or something like that. It's also a positive thing. It's both. It's a, a negative thing, what you stay away from, but it's also a positive thing. In fact, uh, there is a commentator who's like an expert on the book of Proverbs, and as he tries to define righteousness in the book of Proverbs, he says, righteousness, as it's used in Proverbs, is, is this. A righteous man is one who disadvantages himself for the sake of the disadvantaged. So a wicked person is someone who disadvantages the disadvantaged for his own advantage. And in Proverbs, a righteous person is one who's willing to disadvantage himself for the sake of the disadvantaged. Fourth, we're just looking at this passage in James and saying, why does he bring this up? Why is this a test that's so central to his book? One, the character of God. Two, the commands throughout the Old Testament. Three, the fact that a concern for the needy reveals one's relationship with God. Fourth, if we need more proof, we see it in the threats God gives to those who don't care for the vulnerable. So if you go back to Israel and you look at the specific covenant God made with Israel, God packed in curses for disobedience. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 14, he says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say amen. So that was a, a covenant that God made with, with Israel. There were curses built into the covenant for a lack of concern for the orphan, and that's actually part of why the prophets 
came to Israel and said, you're not concerning, you're not concerned for the orphan and the widow, you're breaking the covenant, and this is why God's going to bring judgment on you. But it's not just in that covenant God made with Israel. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 27, which is a, again, Proverbs is just a wisdom book. It's not just about how the world works in Israel, it's about how the world works. And Proverbs is telling us this is the way God designed the world to work and how to live in the world in a way that's wise. And in Proverbs 28, verse 27, it says, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. And so Proverbs is saying God designed the world to work a certain way. And this is, in general, how the world works. You hide your eyes from the needy, and you will receive curses. You'll receive consequences. One passage that shows us how serious God is about the way we treat the vulnerable is Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. And I know this is a little different, just so many scriptures, but the reason, there's a reason for that is we, we want to feel the weight of scripture when it comes to this issue. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 16, Moses is going through all the consequences of sin, and he talks about some really terrible sins. You can read that on your own. And he comes to uh, the sojourner, and he comes to the widow and the fatherless, and he says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And that's intense. You just see how seriously God takes this issue. Fifth, on the other hand, you might consider all the ways that God encourages us to show mercy to the vulnerable. Because uh, when something's important to you, you try to find all sorts of different ways to encourage uh, people and motivate people to do it. And certainly God does that with mercy. Uh, One man's written, there is hardly any duty prescribed in the word of God which is so much insisted on as, as this, mercy. There is scarce any to which there are so many promises of reward made in this life and the life to come. One of my favorites, Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And one reason I love that verse is because if you want to loan money to anyone, you want to loan it to God. And uh, really, the Bible is filled with motivations. We see how important this is to God and the fact that he gives us so many different motivations to lay our lives on the line for the vulnerable, for the needy. The best motivation, though, of course, is the cross, Six, a a sixth reason it makes sense James brings up this test is because we know doing good, showing mercy is part of why God saved us. So we've talked about the character of God, the commands of God, but now you go to the cross. I think one reason James defines pure religion this way is because he knew part of why God saved us was so that we would be excited about doing good. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. This one you might take the time to to, uh, turn to. I was actually going to preach a whole sermon on this one verse as part of our gospel culture series. I don't think I'll do that now. But Titus chapter 2, verse 14 talks about why Jesus died for us. And uh, one of the things it says is that Jesus died that we would be passionate about something. 
Obviously, we are all passionate about different things, and we may be more passionate about one way of doing good and less passionate about another, and it's okay for us to be different about the ways, in the ways we go about doing good to those who are in need, but it's not okay for us not to be passionate about sacrificially doing good. You, you need to have something God says is important that you're passionate about, you're emotional about. It's not that we all have the same gifts or callings. It's not that we all have the same exact opportunities. God's wired us differently for a reason, but we all need to be passionate. We all need to be emotional, emotionally charged about doing some good in this world. And I say that because look at how Paul puts it in Titus 2.14. He takes us to the cross, and he says, look at Jesus. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, too. So Jesus gave himself for us for a reason, to accomplish something. What is the purpose? To redeem us from all lawlessness, to set us from being slaves to sin, and to purify for us for himself, to cleanse us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, and here it is, who are zealous for good deeds. And I was just wanting you to circle in your minds that word zealous, because he doesn't just say he died that we might do good. He actually says that he died that we might have a certain attitude towards laying our lives on the line for others. He says he died that we might be zealous. And what does that word mean? What does zealous mean? One Greek dictionary defines it as someone who is stirred to action by strong emotion. It's the opposite of apathetic. We are people who should be zealous for doing good. Seventh, a seventh reason has to do just with the gospel, the way the gospel works. And, and, and this is important because in James, the context, he, he's talking to people who at least would say they've been born again and who are calling God Father. So, so James's point is not, um, I'm talking to people who are not Christians and who don't know the gospel, and I want to tell them how to be right with God. You know, care for orphans. That will make you right with God. No, that's not his point at all. Orphan care and concern for the vulnerable instead is something that happens when we believe the gospel. This is like a test. The gospel is what motivates us to care for the vulnerable. If you understand the gospel, you really have been transformed by the gospel, it is going to change you into a person who is concerned for the needy. And look, it's got to be the gospel, ultimately, that motivates us in this regard if we're going to engage in long-term sacrificial care for orphans and widows. I promise it's got to be the gospel because it's going to be hard if we are merciful people, especially merciful to those who have nothing to give us, those who are vulnerable like orphans and widows. You're going to be called to make sacrifices. And what is going to motivate you to do that? We all know for some people what motivates them to do mercy is themselves. And that's a big warning. It's easy to use orphans and widows and the needy as a means to pursue self. And so, of course, sometimes people are motivated to help the needy because they think it will make them look good or, you know, in our world today, make them feel good, It'll fill some need in their life, whatever. But listen, that kind of motivation won't last very long. 
or it will end up producing something that's very strange. That's like the opposite of mercy. And it's going to cause people to become bitter and disappointed, and, and it's, it's going to get ugly because really, really caring for orphans and people in desperate situations requires all kinds of sacrifices. And so the question is, what is going to motivate a person to keep on denying himself and keep on making decisions that are only going to make their lives more uncomfortable? That's something that's important to understand. You don't, we're not doing this to make our lives more comfortable. <laughs> it is, it's pretty much guaranteed to make your life less comfortable if you're doing it right. And so it has to be something bigger than what we get out of it. It's got to be the gospel. It's got to be what God has done for us, which is another reason this is such a good test. Because you know what? We look at the gospel, and every which way it provides us motivation to show mercy to the vulnerable. We look at how we were treated. We were shown mercy. We look at who Jesus is, what Jesus is like. We serve a a Savior who shows mercy. We look at our situation now as believers. We have the resources we need to show mercy. We look at the future that we've been promised. We have the hope of rewards for demonstrating God's mercy. I remember thinking about adoption as I was studying Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul tells us that in love, God predestined us to be adopted as, as sons. And that's huge. It's so big. In love, before the beginning of the world, God chose us to be part of his family with all the rights and privileges of real sons. That's right there in the gospel. What God was intending to do in the gospel was to bring us into his family. But I guess what stands out to me about that is the fact that I don't bring anything to the table but sin when it comes to this relationship. It's not like God's up in heaven uh, making this plan to adopt me, and he's like, you know what, that is a really cute little guy down there. And, ah, you know, heaven's pretty big, so uh, it's a little lonely up here. That's actually blasphemy to to talk about that seriously. God has no needs. (laughs) And, And I'm a sinner. The only thing I bring to God is my sin, my rebellion. It's not like God was saying, oh, I wish I could have an intelligent conversation partner. Let me pick Josh. No. Not at all. God's a trinity. He, he lives in an eternal relationship of love between the three members of the trinity. It's not like he was looking and saying, oh, this person's going to be a sweet, innocent child who just, who just, look at him. No, I wasn't just an orphan. I was an enemy of God. All that I had was sin. And what's more, it's not just the adoption itself that is a gift. Anything good that we bring to God now is a gift as well that he purchased at a cost. And think about the cost, because he adopted children like us at the cost of his own perfect son, whom, with whom he had an absolutely perfect relationship already. And you know, as we reach out to help the vulnerable, it's got to be truths like this from the gospel that motivate us. Milton Vincent explains, like nothing else could ever do, the gospel instills in me a heart for the downcast, the poverty-stricken, and those in need of physical mercies, especially when such persons are of the household of faith. When I see persons who are materially poor, I instantly feel a kinship with them, for they are physically what I was spiritually when my heart was closed to Christ. 
Perhaps some of them are in their condition because of sin, but so was I. Perhaps they are unkind when I try to help them, but I too have been spiteful to God when he sought to help me. Perhaps they are thankless and even abuse the kindness I show them, but how many times have I been thankless and used what God has given me to serve selfish ends? Perhaps a poverty-stricken person will be blessed and changed as a result of some kindness I show him. If so, God be praised for his grace through me. But if the person walks away unchanged by my kindness, then I still rejoice over the opportunity to love as God loves. Perhaps the person will repent in time, but for now my heart is chastened and made wiser by the tangible depiction of what I myself have done to God on numerous occasions. The gospel reminds me daily of the spiritual poverty into which I was born and also of the staggering generosity of Christ towards me. Such reminders instill in me both a felt connection to the poor and a desire to show them the same generosity that has been lavished on me. When ministering to the poor with these motivations, I not only preach the gospel to them through word and deed, but I reenact the gospel to my own benefit as well. I often say that I, I learned some of the uh, greatest truths about the gospel in terms of experientially uh, from a little boy who couldn't talk. And living with Muzi for all those years was such a, a deep, deep lesson about God's love for me. Eighth, another reason is, connection, is, connected, is the connection between mercy and worship. So the most important thing in life, obviously, is worship. Even helping the poor and, and worship. Worship is the most important thing in life. And yet... Helping the poor, mercy for us as a Christian has to be connected back to worship. <laughs> and so uh, what I mean is there are different ways we can worship God. Uh, one, you could say, is internal. We worship God by believing God's promises. And that's actually the most important way we can worship God. But there's also external worship. So uh, that's public acts of worship, like what we do today, listening to preaching, singing, all of those kinds of things, reading scripture, public acts of worship. But then there's still another way we worship God, and that is by sacrificially giving to those who are in need. Nobody uh, here is excited about worshiping yourself by giving to those who are in need. Giving to those in need, the reason why it's exciting to us is because it's connected back to worship. This is a way we worship God. And you could call... That way of worshiping God, private acts of worship, serving others because we love God. And out of those three, like I said, faith is obviously the most important because there's no real worship without faith. If you're not trusting that God is for you because of Christ, clinging on to that, public acts of worship, private acts of worship are nothing more than worship of self, self-righteousness. It makes it really ugly, actually, because you're trying to be your own savior or trying to promote yourself and be God. So faith, internal worship, is obviously the most important. It's what gives life to public and private acts of worship. But if you had to compare public act of worship and private act of worship and say which is more important, say you have faith and you're going to worship publicly, and you have faith and you're trying to show you love God by radically, sacrificially, serving those in need. Which of those two is most important? Well, obviously, that's not really a good question. (laughs) 
because uh, they're both command, commanded and they're both vitally important. But you know what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 9, verse 13, and Matthew 12, verse 7, who were very engaged in public acts of worship. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which is a really strange thing for Jesus to say. Because who is the one who came up with the idea of sacrifice? It wasn't human beings thinking, oh, you know, let's come up with a way we should kill a sheep or something. It was actually God who came up with the idea of sacrifice. And so obviously sacrifice wasn't wrong. God actually gives a lot of laws about how to sacrifice in Leviticus. So what's the problem? Why does Jesus say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? The problem, Jesus says, is you're trying to do this public act of worship without the private act of worship, without a heart of mercy. And you need to stop with these rituals until you're willing to demonstrate your faith by showing mercy to those in need. And really, that's an Old Testament theme. That's what the prophets had to keep coming back and saying to the people. The problem wasn't that they were not engaged in rituals most of the time. The problem was that they weren't worshiping God by actually obeying his commands to show love to the needy. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, is a classic passage. Micah asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? In other words, how shall I worship God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? How can he be pleased with that when he's told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? One important way God wants his people to worship him is by sacrificially caring for others. And one reason this is connected back to worshiping God is because really this is a way you demonstrate you trust God, you believe him. Because obviously when you're worshiping an idol, the idol doesn't really have anything he can give you. That idol doesn't answer your prayers. He has nothing he can do for you. So you have to be about yourself. You can't think about the vulnerable unless you're trying to find a way to use the needy to get something you feel like you're lacking. But when you are worshiping God and when you believe the gospel and understand that God the Father, the creator of this universe, is entirely for you, that frees you up to be for people you never would be for normally. Because you know God was for you and you didn't deserve that. Look, as we talk about orphans and, and, and widows, I'm trying to, to give you these motivations and, and, and have you think this way, because if this is just about, like, only guilt, you know, I see a, a person who's vulnerable and I feel so bad, what's going to end up happening is that you're going to twist it into something wrong, because you're going to try to use that poor person as a means to be, or that person who's vulnerable as a means to be your own savior, or you're going to try to be their Messiah. And so we have to connect this back to what the Bible connects it to, which is not about being saved by showing mercy. It's always about the person who's truly received God's mercy showing that mercy. When you trust God, when you're worshiping God, when you believe God is for you, you're not nearly as desperate to be for yourself, which, ninth, is probably why we see such a passion for this in the early church. It makes sense for James to talk about this 
because this is something the early church was passionate about. In fact, one of the very first things the leaders in the early church did in Acts 6 was what? Establish a way to care for widows. I mean, that was like quick after the church started. When Paul writes a letter to Timothy explaining how to run a church, he gets very specific in 1 Timothy chapter 5, honor widows who are widows indeed. He lays out a plan for how the church is to do that. You read uh, through the New Testament, and I unfortunately have a lot more here that we're not going to be able to get to, but you read through the New Testament, and you're going to see a startling level of commitment to ministries of compassion. When uh, Paul in Galatians chapter 2 goes up to talk to the uh, leaders of the church, you know, the pillars, he, he says. He describes his meeting with them, and uh, you, you hear him talk about that meeting, and you think, I wonder what they talked about. They must have talked about doctrine, and they did talk about doctrine. They talked about big issues. But Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, look it up. I picture it as Paul about to leave, <laughs> and he's about to get up, and, and he says, the only thing they asked me at the end was to remember the poor. He's about to go, Paul, remember the poor. And what does Paul say? He says, the very thing I was eager to do. And of course, there are some who would say that refers to the collection of, for the saints who were in Jerusalem, and that could be true, though I don't see in Galatians that he actually explicitly says that. We have to add that in from what we know. And even then, of course, if he's referring to that offering, it indicates a sacrificial love and concern for other believers who are having difficulties. That is uh, convicting and important. But I think what's actually happening in Galatians 2 is not that. I don't think it's about the, the poor in Jerusalem. I think what's happening is that the apostles are, are not so much talking to Paul personally as they are pastorally. And they're encouraging Paul as he works with the Gentiles, which was a different mission than uh, they had at that point. They're encouraging him to make sure that Gentiles who become part of God's people continue to live as the Jewish prophets have always urged us to and remember the poor in their communities. And I've got maybe like four reasons why I think that, but I'll give them to you some other time. But that may be one reason why the early church made such an impact for the gospel. It was clear they weren't worshiping the same gods everyone else was, and one reason it was clear was because of the sacrifices they made for the needy, which I think is helpful when we talk about evangelism as well, because our evangelism isn't going to be as nearly, it's not going to nearly be as effective as it should be if the world looks at us and sees us worshiping all the same idols as they do, as they do, right? They would say, why would I want that? It just means I have to get up earlier on Sunday mornings. <laughs> you're pursuing money all out. You're pursuing security all out. You're pursuing comfort all out. That's the same as me which is one reason why I think a ministry of compassion to the poor, the way we reach out to the vulnerable, helps us evangelize the rich because through our lifestyle, we turn those idols upside down. They look at us and say, what, why? And we say, God, the gospel, that's it. Obviously, the word is central in our evangelism. The word declares what God has done. No one can be saved without hearing God's word, but God uses our deeds to make the word look beautiful. One of my favorite evangelists, Charles Spurgeon, understood this. Uh, George Grant writes regarding Spurgeon's mercy ministries. Spurgeon looked upon his work of sheltering the homeless as part of the rest of his ministry. It was inseparable from their other labors, preaching, writing, praying, and evangelizing. It was inseparable, in fact, from faith in Christ. Once a doubter accosted Spurgeon on a London road and challenged the authenticity of his faith. Imagine. 
Spurgeon answered the man by pointing out the failure of the worldly in mounting a practical and consistent program to help the needy thousands in his city. In contrast, he pointed out the works of compassion that had sprung from faith in Christ, Whitfield's mission, Mueller's orphanage, Bernardo's shelter. He then closed the conversation by paraphrasing the cry of Elijah, asserting that the God who answers by orphanages, let him be God. True believers prove themselves to be children of the Father by demonstrating his concern for the helpless. They're marked by compassion that acts, they see. When James says pure and undefiled religion is this, it's something we need to take seriously because it's not like a random comment that he wrote down on an off night, but rather an insight that runs or taps into a theme that runs throughout all of scripture. It's like a biblical hyperlink. It's not optional. It's not just about sympathy. It's not just about personality. It's about holiness. It's a test. It's the test of the reality of our religion. And you know what? It's also a wonderful opportunity to glorify God by laying ourselves on the line for those in need. This is not just negative. It's also positive. You want to worship God? Be concerned about something God's concerned about. Have a priority you know is a priority to him. Be engaged in something that other godly people are engaged in. Be part of something that God makes promises about. Be forced to think more deeply about the gospel and live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Seek to care for the vulnerable the way that God calls you to. And one simple way to, to start is just by making a strategy. So I'm already over time, but real quickly. First, pray. Pray that God would overwhelm you with the love of God, his love for you. Because again, a terrible way to care for orphans and widows and the needy is to start with, I have to do this to be a good person. That's a terrible way. That's not different than the world, and it won't last. It's not that we do all this to be good people and get God's mercy. It's that we've been shown God's mercy, and God sees our heart. Motivation is, is even more important to God than amount. I remember preaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan and just being tired as I studied it, because as you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you look at the way he served, you think, man, I don't know that I've done that once. Which is actually part of the point, because Jesus is showing us that we can't even keep the most basic command to love our neighbor. Everybody knows to love their neighbor, but we don't even keep that most basic command in our everyday life, which is something that shows us how much we need God's grace. And yet here's the beautiful thing. As we realize that we're wicked, we don't deserve God's grace, we can't even keep these most basic commands, God shows up and pours out his grace upon us through Christ, which motivates us to show grace. So if you're convicted by all these kinds of sermons, be comforted. Look to the cross. The cross is for people like us who don't know how to show mercy the way we should, who have been self-absorbed. And as you look at the cross and enjoy God's mercy towards self-absorbed sinners who repent, move on from the cross and show that kind of mercy to others starting first with those who are closest to you. Pray, act, uh, but look at, look at the people around you. I've met people who show so much mercy to people they don't know that they don't show very much mercy to people they do, and that doesn't make sense. Before you start showing mercy to others, make sure the people in your family know you're merciful. That's definitely important, but then make yourself aware of the needs in your church and in your community and in your world, the people you're around on a regular basis. Pray, look, see. And I've been encouraged in this church by the ways that 
people are doing this here, looking for opportunities to help people who are in vulnerable situations, making a plan. That Listen, that is beautiful. That is so beautiful. That honors God and makes the gospel look beautiful. Some of you are really good at that already. Some of the rest of us, we need to work hard at it, at actually seeing And it can be hard because our lives are busy, and sometimes the truth is it's easier just not to see. That's why the world is set up the way it is, so that rich, that people, that we don't need to see. (laughs) And compassion begins with seeing. And so we need to make sure we see the needs that are here in our church, our community. And to do that, we need to try to look at things with the eyes of Christ. What would Jesus be concerned about? How would he see this situation? Third, talk. Get together with your friends and talk about how can we do this. That's part of what we should be doing at church, considering how to provoke one another to love and good works, thinking together. And we don't have to come and be really hard on one another like, hey, what's your problem? But instead we can (laughs) encourage one another. Keep going like in a basketball game, you know, or a race when you're talking to someone on your team. You're like, man, we can do this. There's an opportunity. Let's try And then fifth, act. And it doesn't have to be so huge. Just take simple steps. Because obviously you're not going to be able to do it all. You're not the Messiah. Jesus is going to have to come back and fix the problems of the world. That's like one of our main messages as a church. We moved to Africa to help orphans. And you know what? There are still orphans in Africa. And even those we tried to help, we weren't always able to do as much as we wish we could. And if you sit down and ask me, I can come up with all kinds of reasons why... I I wasn't able to love the way that I should have loved. And so you have to know before you start, if you do this kind of thing to be the hero, it's not going to work because Jesus is the hero. That's like our message. (laughs) And you can't do everything, and what you even do isn't going to be as good as you wish it was. And uh, people can encourage you and say nice things, and you know that's not even as good as I wish it was. So it's not going to make you feel that much better if that's what you're relying on. The only hope is Christ. And I know some of us feel so guilty so quickly, and that's okay sometimes because we are guilty. The problem is we forget there's a Savior for sinners, and so we don't have to justify ourselves. That's why Jesus came. But when we stop trying to justify ourselves, we can actually look out and begin to act because you may not be able to do everything as well as you like, but the thing is you can do something, and Jesus sees what you're doing even a cup of cold water, you know? And you can start by praying for the vulnerable. That's real. That's doing something. Praying for those who are waiting to be adopted. Feeling is good just to notice and groan and cry out to God for others. There's a million different options. And, you know, we look at orphans so exclusively and widows so exclusively. But the truth is a child with only one parent is like an orphan, or a a young person who's here undocumented, and his parents are someone else, and he's having to live on his own, that's like an orphan, or older people who don't have many individuals to look after them. We're just talking needy people here, really. And the opportunities are all around. You can do something, but whatever you do, remember ultimately, you're not doing it just to feel good about yourself or because you think you can solve the problems of the world. You're doing it for Jesus. And here's here's the good news. Jesus sees Alistair Begg, he tells the story about when he started out as a pastor back in Scotland, and he was visiting a, like a nursing home, and uh, he asked the pastor he was visiting with, he's like, why are we here? Because most of these people are like sleeping or they're, 
they're not uh, with it right now, and so they don't even actually know that we're here or they're going to remember. And the pastor looked at Alistair Begg, and he's like, you are missing the point. Um, because ultimately, the, the reason we're making these visits and doing these Bible studies is for Christ himself, not just for those who are in the facility. And that is so true, isn't it? For as often as we have done it unto the least of these, we have done it unto Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for showing mercy to us. Help us to show mercy to others. Help us to be a church that isn't trying to do good to earn favor, but is freed up to do good because we've been shown so much favor. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.